Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Being a mom of six means it's nearly impossible to avoid one of my kiddos getting sick during the winter time. Now the challenge has always been finding medicines my kids could stomach and ones I feel good about giving them. But I must tell you about a brand I discovered and have now partnered with. Genexa is the first clean medicine brand that makes their medicines using the same effective active ingredients you need, but minus the artificial inactive ingredients you don't need. This means no artificial dyes, propylene glycol, talc, and high fructose corn syrup, among a lot of other ingredients. They have a full line of everyday over-the-counter medicines as well as a homeopathic line. Whether it's fever, cold, allergies, or sleep essentials, Genexa has you and your whole family covered in those areas and more. If you want to try them, I have a code for you. Head to Genexa.com. That's G-E-N-E-X-A.com. And use code JUSTINGREDIENTS to save 20% off your entire purchase. Max Lugavere is a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and New York Times bestselling author. He is also the host of the number one iTunes health podcast, The Genius Life. He is an internationally sought-after speaker and has given talks at South by Southwest, TEDx, the New York Academy of Sciences, the Biohacker Summit in Stockholm, Sweden, and others. He lives in Los Angeles, and his new cookbook is called Genius Kitchen, over 100 easy and delicious recipes to make your brain sharp, body strong, and taste buds happy. I am so excited to have Max Lugavere here today, you guys, on the show. It actually is a huge honor that he would be here on the show. He is so busy with his podcast and all that he does with social media, and so I've been following him for a long time. I love what he does on social media. I read his book a few years ago, so I just am really honored to have him here on the show today. So thank you, Max, for being here. Carolyn, thank you so much for having me. What an honor. The honor is all mine. Let me just put it that way. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So why don't you tell my listeners maybe a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you became interested in health and nutrition? Yeah, great starting place. So I, I describe myself as a, a health and science journalist. I'm also an author. I've written three books now at this point with my newest one coming out soon. It's called Genius Kitchen. And my first book was called Genius Foods. And then in the middle there, I released a book called The Genius Life, which came out March 2020, which was not a good time to release a book. But <laughs> uh, but what can you do? But my, my passion really is um, health science communication with a focus on nutrition, fitness, sleep, and ways to help people preserve and enhance their brain health as they age. And the reason for that, the reason for that being my central passion is that my mother at a very young age developed a rare form of dementia called Lewy body dementia. And I was not somebody that anybody would call an expert at the time. I was just a son trying to figure out what was going on with, with his mom. And that led to me going with my mom to various doctor's appointments in New York City, which is where I'm from ultimately experiencing what I've come to call diagnose and adios in those circumstances. A doctor will would run a battery of esoteric tests, write a prescription, and then, and then send my mom on her way without any context or explanation. And it wasn't until we took a trip to the Cleveland Clinic. I mean, that's how real things got in my family. We booked a trip to the Cleveland Clinic to try to figure out finally what it was that my mom had because we weren't really getting any answers. 
up at that up until that point one doctor would say that my mom was depressed and put her on sertraline which is an antidepressant which by the way one in four women over the age of 40 are on some kind of antidepressant drug and it's just a really heartbreaking scenario there which we can talk about but so every doctor had their own different take on what it was that my mom was experiencing because granted her clinical presentation wasn't straightforward but it wasn't until that trip to the Cleveland Clinic where my mom was diagnosed for the first time with a neurodegenerative condition and she was prescribed drugs for both Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And for me, that was the point where everything changed. I became obsessed with trying to understand why this would have happened to a woman at the age at which it did. Because my mom was young. She was 58 when she showed her first symptom. Oh, that is young. Um, yeah. And I had no prior family history of any kind of neurodegenerative condition. My mom certainly wasn't old, so I couldn't chalk it up to genes. I couldn't chalk it up to age. I had a hunch, though, that there was something in her environment that potentially triggered what it was that she developed. And that's where I began looking. And in tandem with that, I became interested also with what could be done to prevent this from ever happening to myself, because I realized at that point that I now had a risk factor, right? A family member right. with this condition. What my mom developed could easily happen to me. And so... And so that's really where I, I began. And a few milestone discoveries stood out to me, one of which being that dementia often begins in the brain decades before the first symptom of memory loss. So by the time you show up with your first symptom of Alzheimer's disease, that's a 30, 40 year disease process already set into motion. Oh, wow. With, Park with Parkinson's disease, for example, which is a condition that my mom Actually, the, the form of dementia that my mom had is more closely associated with Parkinson's disease, although it has characteristics of Alzheimer's as well. But by the time you show up with your first symptom of Parkinson's disease to the neurologist, half of the neurons involved in movement in that region of the brain are already dead. So it just made perfect sense to me that this is something that, that we need to be talking about. We need to be talking about it at younger ages and not just from the standpoint of caregiving, of protecting our parents, which obviously we, we ought to do, right? But it needs to be something that we're thinking about in terms of our own health, our own cognitive destiny. Right. And nobody was, nobody was talking about it at the time. And so I began this decade long at this point research process where I've left no stone unturned and I've gone into the primary literature and I've really armed myself with knowledge. And I realized that one of the best ways, if not the best way to learn is to teach. So I started, I would just start sharing my information out into the world. And I realized at a certain point that I had an aptitude for it and people started gravitating to my message and it led to the opportunity to write, to write these books. I'm just eternally grateful for that. Wow. What a um, story you have. And I love though, that you took something hard in your life and turned it into a positive because you've been educating thousands and thousands of people. And so many people have benefited from this hard trial that you had in your life. So let me ask you, was the Cleveland Clinic more of a functional medicine route or how did they figure out her diagnosis there? Yeah. So I didn't know what the term functional medicine meant back then, uh, just to show you how in the dark I was. And I think that's something that I'll by the way, is very relatable probably to a lot of people. Um, when, when you're in the fog of war, as I describe it, of chronic disease, it can be very disorienting because doctors speak in medical jargon. Information from credible sources is not always the most user-friendly information. For example, PubMed is not the most user-friendly. Now, I had a background for researching because I was, I was personally passionate about fitness and nutrition, but what attracted us to the Cleveland Clinic is that 
what we read about it is that they take on com very complex medical cases, kind of like the Mayo Clinic. It's like it's the last stop in the U.S. that you go to, right? Right. They take on complex medical cases. They build a team around you. Like you go for a week and they put together a team. They bring into like one room, an endocrinologist, a neurologist, a cardiologist, and they take a quote unquote functional approach. The way that I would presently define functional medicine, it's not so much that it's not, they, they still didn't talk about nutrition or lifestyle or anything like that. They did for the first time give the condition that my mom had a name or at least a classification as a Parkinson's like disorder with dementia. And then it wasn't actually until a few years later that she was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia, which is a rare um, and devastating form of dementia. But that's why we went to the Cleveland Clinic. Okay. Makes sense. So question for you. I know you have your new book, Genius Kitchen, but actually I want to talk to you a little bit about Genius Foods first, because I love that book. But in that book, you talk about a lot of foods that we should incorporate into our diet that are good for our brain health. And so why don't you just mention some of those foods to my listeners? Yeah. Good place to start. So one of the inciting realizations that I had before I wrote Genius Foods, which led to the writing of Genius Foods, was I read a study from Tufts University that found that people who adhere to the advice to eat everything in moderation, you know that age-old advice that you still get from the nutritional orthodoxy, you'll still get from the nutritional orthodoxy, just eat everything in, in moderation. Right. People that adhere to that advice actually eat more junk food than people who stick to a narrower range of healthy foods and just buy those foods on loop. So I was like, okay, if that's true, I'm going to look into the medical literature and I'm going to find the foods that are the most accessible, the most, the easiest to afford for people that also provide the most bang for the buck in terms of nutrient density, the ability to promote satiety, which is the, an ability of a food to fill you up, to make you feel satiated, right? Right. Very important feature. And to be able to provide the brain with building blocks and protector molecules that are going to help it age well and lower its risk for conditions like dementia as it ages. And I call them the genius foods. And so some of those foods, I would say one of my favorites are avocados. I mean, I, I live in California, so getting to convince somebody to eat more avocado, it's not, I wouldn't not say hard. it's difficult. <laughs> it's not hard, yeah. But avocados, here's what's interesting about avocados, is that they have the highest concentration of fat-protecting antioxidants of any fruit or vegetable. And this is of particular relevance to the brain because the brain is made of fat. And not only is the brain made of fat, the brain is a crucible for what's called oxidative stress. And that's because 25% of the energy generated in the entirety of your body is being created in your brain. And your brain's volume only accounts for 2% of your body's mass. So 25% of oxygen utilization in your body is being squeezed into a container the size of a grapefruit. This is a lot of wow. oxygen, right? That is. And your brain is constructed of fats called polyunsaturated fats for the most part, which are very delicate and damage prone, prone to this chemical degradation called oxidation, as well as cholesterol, which is another lipid that's prone to, to oxidation. So fat soluble antioxidants are really important when it comes to protecting the brain. And avocados, again, the highest concentration, they're rich in vitamin E, which is one of the most important fat soluble antioxidants and also rich in carotenoids called lutein and zeaxanthin, which we have known for decades can protect the neural tissue in the eyes, but we now also know can protect the brain as it ages. So avocados are great. I consume personally about a half an avocado a day. It's still a calorie dense food, but it's, a, it's one where you're really getting a ton of mileage in terms oh. of neuroprotection. 
I love hearing that about avocados. That's fascinating. And love hearing that the brain needs that much oxygen and we need to protect it, things like that. So what's another favorite food? Well, another favorite food. So we already talked about one of my favorite plant foods. I'm going to have to go and talk about one of my favorite foods, which is grass-fed, grass-finished beef. I know it's a little bit more controversial, which is one of the reasons I think why I like to talk about it so much. It's not that I prefer it over other food items, but my mother was actually a lifelong vegetarian. She, Whenever she ate animal products, it was always lean, skinless, boneless chicken breast. She ate a little bit of fish on occasion, never any red meat, never any eggs, because my mom was afraid of saturated fat and cholesterol. She thought that, that those two nutrients would lead to heart disease, which is something that she was always afraid of, and yet she never developed. She developed dementia instead, unfortunately. But red meat is a rich and highly bioavailable source of many important nutrients, not least of which being protein. So protein is crucially important, especially as we get older in terms of muscle mass preservation. This becomes really difficult and exponentially more important as we get older. We want to stay mobile. We want to minimize fall risk. We want to continue to be able to do things like exercise, which we know is medicine for the brain. So the protein found in meat is pristine. Of course, you can also find protein in fish, chicken, poultry, uh, in, a, in plant products, although not to the same quality or digestibility. But in beef, you also get bioavailable iron, you get zinc, you get a small amount of omega-3s, you get creatine, which is an important nutrient for brain energy metabolism. And studies show that when vegans and vegetarians supplement with creatine, they see an improvement in their cognitive function. Also, brain levels of creatine decline as we get older, and they might also be lower as a result of certain genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. So I think creatine is a really important brain-protecting nutrient. It's a carnonutrient, so you only find it in animal products. Choline also is, a, is found in red meat. Older adults who consume more choline have a 30% risk reduction for developing dementia. And so, yeah, I think red meat is, is a really important, it's a staple for me. It's, it's not necessarily essential, but I do think it, it does have an important place in the Genius Kitchen. So I'm sure you get a lot of controversial comments about the red meat because I know I do, and but people know I'm not vegetarian. What do you say to vegetarians? Because I've got a lot of them and a lot that are now trying to go vegetarian because plant-based is such a trendy thing right now. So what's your advice to these people? Yeah, well, they're, they're being misled. There are very convincing, quote-unquote, thought leaders in the vegan veg vegetarian space, celebrity doctors that continually paint a very inaccurate view of the role that meat can play in a, in a completely healthy and, dare I say, even optimized human diet. I think a lot of people will use the ethical argument. To me, the only valid argument to not eat meat is that you don't like it. That's a totally fine argument. You don't like eating animals. That makes you uncomfortable. That, to me, is a, is a very valid ar argument. The argument, though, that you don't like to be responsible for the death of an animal is a little bit less valid because today, even plant agriculture takes over 7 billion animal lives per year, just via plant agriculture alone. We're talking about squirrels, rabbits, insects, fish, birds that are all affected by whether it's chemical runoff or the widespread tilling of land, right? Which decapitates countless squirrels, not to go morbid here, but squirrels, rabbits, field critters displaces them from their homes, right? So have we just colluded to consent that the life of one cow is somehow more valuable than the life of hundreds of, if not thousands of these smaller farm critters? It just doesn't make any sense. 
So the idea that you can have one cow feed a family for a month, at least, um, that to me is, is significant. And in terms of the area under the curve of suffering, it makes a lot more sense to me to be a conscious omnivore and to support farmers and producers of grass-finished meat that care. Right. Where animals come from a system where they have only one bad day. And those farming systems absolutely exist. Yes, they they're, do. They're, they're the minority of systems, I will say that, but they exist. And, and we don't make the system better by opting out of it entirely. We make the system better by voting with our wallets for producers who care. From a health standpoint, this is where vegans and vegetarians tend to get especially sneaky and clever with their utilization of science because, and I think it's very disingenuous the way that most of them do it. Even, even some of the more respected ones will, are still guilty of this. They use science to their advantage. And the reason why I say that is because it's not difficult to find observational level evidence that shows an association between animal product consumption and worse health outcomes. And the reason for that is that at the population level, meat consumption is typically associated with higher incidence of smoking, higher rates of sedentary behavior. It's what's called the healthy user bias. So the healthy user bias implies that when you find a person who eats predominantly whole grains, for example, or who exercises regularly, chances are that person is doing other things in their diet and lifestyle that's also helpful, right? So it's hard to tease out at the observational level with a research tool called epidemiology, whether or not the health that you see in an individual is due to their consumption of quinoa, for example, or because of this healthy user effect, that they're doing all kinds of other things healthily. The fact that they even know what quinoa is, right, is something that puts them in the minority of health-conscious individuals. So I wouldn't be surprised if quinoa was associated with dramatically better health than the than the average in this population. Does that mean that, that it's the quinoa? Right. No, it's it, that, that it might have nothing at all to do with the quinoa, right? They might be healthy in spite of the quinoa, not necessarily because right. of it. That's observational evidence. And we see an inverse effect with meat consumption and egg consumption. We see that people who eat more meat and eggs, um, especially processed meat, they're eating fast food, right? Because that's what right. processed meat is. Processed yeah. meat is hot dogs, hamburgers, fried frozen chicken dishes, and the like. So it's very easy to find observational level evidence where meat is linked or associated with worse health outcomes, higher rates of diabetes, higher risks of cardiovascular disease, of colon cancer. But now we're getting better at performing these studies because we know that those biases exist in the literature. And what we're seeing is that when diet quality is controlled for, meat plays a perfectly healthy role and is associated with none of these chronic disease conditions that people are afraid of once overall diet quality is controlled for. Meaning if you are integrating grass-fed and finished beef in the context of a diet that's also high in whole vegetables and contains a minimum amount of ultra-processed packaged food products, that meat is absolutely healthy. Eggs are absolutely healthy in that context, right? Right. It's not even the, necessarily the processed meat that's driving colon cancer in the associations that we see processed meat associated with colon cancer. It's the fact that processed meat is literally fast food. It's literally ballpark hot dogs on a white wheat bun with the french fries that come with it and the soda the, the right. fact that whoever's consuming processed meat probably is drinking a lot more soda so nutrition research is really hard and there's no randomized control evidence to suggest that meat is unhealthy that's so interesting i love that you talk about an observational study because that's what i have found as well so i love that you're teaching like make sure you know what the study is that we're talking about but also i love that you talk about supporting the grass-fed 
cows because I'm really big into support your local farmers. A lot of the local farmers have amazing grass-fed cows and treat them so incredibly well, way different than the factory farm cows that are not the grass-fed cows usually. So thank you for stating that. And then also I have a question though about red meat for you because my followers like to ask me, well, don't you think red meat contributes to inflammation? So how would you answer that? That's a great question. There was actually a 2021 meta-analysis looking at all available randomized controlled trials where they fed subjects meat and looked at inflammatory markers. So this isn't like a huge body of evidence that's out there, you can imagine, but there are a number of randomized controlled trials at this point that have looked at that. And they found no impact of meat consumption on inflammatory markers. So it's not inflammatory. There's no signal that's suggesting that it's inflammatory. It's only been called inflammatory. I think some vegan uh, zealots will call it inflammatory without actually having the evidence to do so, but they'll perhaps look at mechanisms like it contains certain proteins that they suspect might have an inflammatory effect, but that hasn't been borne out in terms of the randomized controlled trials, which are the kinds of trials required to prove cause and effect. You know, some will say it's the TMAO in, in meat or it's the NEU5GC. I think that's what it is. It's a proteoglycan found in mammalian tissue that I think some vegans will say is inflammatory. You'll see a lot of things occur in Petri dishes, for example, like an inflammatory effect when you combine these chemicals with like a white blood cell in a Petri dish. But that isn't necessarily borne out when you feed it to a person, right? Right. You see a lot of issues with plants as well, though. I mean, plants can can suck up heavy metals from the ground in which they are grown. So every food item has, there are aspects to it that if you were to like, in isolation, say, oh, that's why you shouldn't be eating that food. That's not borne out when you eat it as part of a balanced diet with antioxidants and other foods, right? Right, right. I even, tell people that all the time. I'm like, there is no perfect food out there. Water isn't even perfect. Water has yeah, its main issues, you know? Exactly. What, modern water is a soup containing environmental toxins, pharmaceuticals. I mean, you name it. But in small doses or in, in doses adequate to sustain you, probably no big deal, right? But if you drink enough water fast enough, it can actually kill you. So in many ways, the dose makes the poison for all of these different things. You can eat enough bok choy that will cause hypothyroidism and lead to the growth of a goiter on your neck, which actually some woman in China did a couple of years ago. There was a case report published where a woman found out that bok choy could play a helpful role in the prevention of diabetes. So she started eating two kilograms of bok choy a day, raw bok choy, which is a terrible idea from the standpoint of your <laughs> thyroid, ended up growing this large goiter oh boy. on the side of her neck and had to go to the emergency room. So all foods have risks and benefits, all foods. They do. They but, all have pros but, and cons. Yeah, but when we're talking about whole foods, animal products, whole plants, the benefits generally are going to outweigh the risks for most people. And then we can get granular with each individual because ultimately there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all diet. You might not digest cruciferous vegetables. Okay, so let me ask you about greens. How are greens beneficial to the brain? So greens are great. There was a research study published out of Rush University that found that people who eat one large salad every day have brains that perform up to 11 years younger. So they have brains that, for all intents and purposes, is 11 years younger than age-matched controls. This could be healthy user bias, right? Somebody who's eating a salad every day, 
I bet you most people in the United States are not eating a salad every day, but people who do tend to be probably more health conscious. Maybe they're more likely to take a multivitamin. Maybe they're more likely to exercise. So that was an observational study, but we do know that dark leafy greens contain a number of nutrients, depending on the green, that play a role in optimizing brain function. So we can look to dark leafy greens like kale. One cup of cooked kale has 24 milligrams of combined lutein and zeaxanthin. I already talked about lutein and zeaxanthin as being found in avocados, but they're very, very abundant in greens like kale. Anywhere you see um, yellowish hues, red hues in the produce section, you're gonna find these carotenoids. And what they found is that these carotenoids actually protect brain cells from aging. Higher consumption of them is associated with better cognitive health as we age. And randomized control trials show that even when you're young and healthy, eating more of these compounds actually leads to a, a visual processing speed boost in the brain. So your brain, if you struggle with reaction time, which is something really important for avoiding accidents when you're driving, for example, or playing video games or playing sports or catching something as it falling off the ledge in your kitchen, that's visual processing speed. And studies show that when we increase our consumption of these compounds, that we see about a 20% improvement in our visual processing speed, which is amazing. Mm, yeah, the study is. was done yeah, with young, healthy college students who are already thought to be at their peak cognitive prowess. So it was, a, it was a really remarkable finding. We also know dark leafy greens, rich in fiber, which feed the gut flora, which is really important. A happy gut makes a happy brain. We know that greens like arugula, rich in nitrates, which helps support our nitric oxide pathway, which helps lower blood pressure and boost blood flow to our brains, uh, elsewhere throughout our bodies. Also really important when it comes to insulin signaling, which is an important feature of metabolic health is to be highly insulin sensitive and, and nitric oxide plays a role there. So arugula is a top source of dietary nitrates. Spinach, great source of folate. So they all have different and overlapping benefits. And so that's why dark leafy greens, I try to eat about a cup to two cups of dark leafy greens every single day. I don't go overboard, but one to two cups every day, I think is great insurance. It's a great way to make sure you're getting those carotenoids, good source of dietary fiber. Yeah, the greens and, are amazing. I think yeah. they're miraculous, actually. When you study all the healing benefits that they have, I think they're amazing. So let me ask you about omega-3s. Because right now I feel like omega-3s are really trendy with brain health. Would you agree with that? Uh, omega-3s yeah. are helpful? Absolutely. Omega-3s are one of the most important structural building blocks for the brain. The issue is that plant-derived omega-3s, alpha-linolenic acid or ALA, are actually not very highly usable by the body because they have to undergo complex biochemical transformation in order to become the bioactive forms that the brain and the body will use. So for example, the brain, one of the most important structural building blocks of the human brain is called docosa hexaenoic acid. So that's DHA fat. Right. It's why we call it DHA fat because no one wants to say that. <laughs> that's, I mean, even for me, it's like, cause I'm a tongue twister. Know? Yep. Yeah. It's a, it's a good way to warm up for giving talks. Just say that <laughs> five times fast. So we need to basically create that from the plant-based form and people differ in their ability to do that. So certain genders are better at it than others. For example, women are better at it than men. And this is thought to be an advantage for women to be able to generate more omega-3s for potentially for their offspring, right? right? Um, men are not very good at the process required to create DHA from the plant-based form. Certain different races are better at it than others. So people with of darker complexion are better at it than people of lighter complexion. 
And people generally get worse at it as they get older. An environmental factor that plays a role is that the more omega-6 fats we consume, which Americans definitely consume quite a bit of these days by way of the grain and seed oils, which now saturate our diets. Way too much. Out, way too much. Use the same enzymes. They compete for the same enzymes, mm -hmm. which are essential for turning the plant-based um, omega-3s to their usable form in the body. So uh, if you're getting your omega-3s from plants, that's not the way to go. And in fact, I was having this conversation with a friend recently. If you're using flaxseed oil, for example, to get your omega-3s, you're probably barely contributing to your omega-3 pool hmm. and you're ingesting a ton of calories for, you know, in the process. So you're consuming a ton of extra, essentially empty calories, while what you're netting out is a negligible amount of omega-3s in their, in their usable biological form. So for me, omega-3s do play an incredibly important role, but you want to make sure that you're getting them in their preformed state. So vegans and vegetarians can reach for algae oil. Oh, okay. The rest of us, fish oil is a great option. Um, and then also you can find omega-3s in, in preformed omega-3s in whole foods like wild fatty fish. You get a tiny amount in grass-finished beef, but the, the majority of omega-3s that you'll find um, in, the, in the supermarket are in fish and eggs. Eggs are also a good source. Yes. I don't think a lot of people know eggs. They know fish because I'll get followers all the time say like, my kids hate fish. How do I get them their omega-3s? And when I tell them eggs, they're like, oh, I didn't realize that. So... Well, eggs are a genius food, um, and the reason why omega-3s are to be found in egg yolks is because an egg yolk contains a little bit of everything required to grow a healthy brain. I call egg yolks a cognitive multivitamin, and this is because when an embryo is developing, the first structure to assemble is the nervous system, which obviously includes the brain. So it's no wonder that egg yolks are rich in cholesterol. The brain is rich in cholesterol. 25% of the cholesterol in your body is found in your brain. It's no wonder egg yolks are, are abundant in this life-giving nutrient, right? You don't need to consume cholesterol because your brain makes all the cholesterol that it needs. It's called de novo cholesterol synthesis. So I'm not telling anybody that they need to go out and start eating more cholesterol. Um, but foods that contain cholesterol tend to also contain a lot of nutrients that are beneficial to the brain. So egg yolks are an amazing as I mentioned, cognitive multivitamin, rich in choline, which is crucially important. 90% of Americans don't consume adequate choline. And you get, I believe you get your full adequate intake for choline in a single egg yolk. Egg yeah. yolks are amazing. And I was just going to say, it's sad because a lot of people that count their macros throw out their egg yolks and want just oh, egg yeah. whites. I mean, I will sometimes, I'll make it, it depends on where I'm at. If I'm trying to lean out a little bit, I will make a scramble with three to, so this is a really cool trick that I, to me is very intuitive, but I posted it on my Instagram and, and people were kind of mind blown, which, which was surprising to me, but I'll sometimes buy, um, I buy whole eggs cause I, I want that cognitive multivitamin egg yolks are so good for you, but then I'll also buy a carton of egg whites, um, when I go shopping and I'll combine sometimes two to three to four whole eggs with a little bit of extra egg whites from the carton, just to boost up the protein, protein. content of the scramble while keeping the fat calories stable. Okay, so they can throw out a couple yolks if they're keeping some yolks in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, I feel, maybe this is the nutrition nerd in me, but I feel guilty throwing out egg throwing. yolks. So I don't, I'll never throw, you'll never find me throw out an egg yolk because it's so, it's so nutrient rich that I, I'll buy, I keep in my fridge both literally like a carton of, of eggs and I've got the egg whites and I just, I'll combine both. I think it's um, genius how you're talking about the egg yolk like as the embryo and the it's developing the nervous system and all that because I don't think most people look at the egg yolk that way. 
No, I mean the the egg yolk is it literally gets connected to the to the embryo, and it's what supplies the baby chicken's food, all the nutrients required to grow a healthy brain. Yeah, that's fascinating. Egg, eggs are amazing. It's where they're where life begins. Okay, so I have a question for you. I get a lot of followers that are like, okay, I know all these foods are good for me, but we're on a really strict budget. What do you say to people that want to claim money as their issue? I mean, I, I, f- I feel the pain, you know, because there was a time when I couldn't afford to buy all the health food that I wanted. Although I would always, um, even when I was broke, I would spend more money on quality food because I knew that that would lift, that would make all the boats in my harbor, so to speak, lift by just by nourishing myself in the best way possible. If I'm stressed, if I um, am working to really be my best self so that I can make more money, for me, nutrition was always the first place that I would look to make sure that I'm at least battening down the hatches in terms of the, the nutrients that I'm giving my brain, right? Because my brain makes everything else happen. But there are certainly ways to economize. I mean, first thing, stop buying the stuff that you don't need. I mean, that's, I think, rule number one. Like, I think you see a lot of people in the wellness industry on social media promote this idea of perfectionism. And you need all these fancy products in order to be healthy. It's really not true. I mean, you could do, there's so much that you could do with food and more aspirational products, whether it's fancy sparkling waters or CBD products or whatever, all the discretionary stuff I would cut out. There's certainly a a place for all of those things, but for me, spending more money on food quality, if I've got to make concessions elsewhere in my, in my shopping budget, I'll do that to make sure that I can buy, you know, the meat that I know is going to be the healthiest for me so that I can buy the grass-finished beef instead of the factory-farmed beef. And by the way, I love to point out that even factory-farmed beef is still a health food. And this is kind of sacrilegious to the paleo community where I don't really align with any dietary tribe because for me, again, it's about truth. It's not about, right. it's not about dogma, right? Which I appreciate. Um, yeah, and I don't like to support the factory-farm system. So... It hurts me to, to endorse it because I know that, that animals are not treated well. It's not good for the environment. Look, I know that, right? But sometimes if that's all that you have access to, it's really important for people to know that you can buy lean ground beef. It doesn't have to be grass finished. And that's still an amazing source of dietary protein, an amazing source of iron, an amazing source of vitamin E, an amazing source of creatine, and a way better option than boxed mac and cheese, right? If it's between those two for dinner, eat the factory farmed beef. It's so important that people understand that, right? That actually is really important because I know there are people out there, they think like, oh, okay, I can't get the grass-fed beef, so I'm not going to eat the other beef. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Grass-fed beef is, is a better option. It's got, it's got a lower proportion of saturated fat. It's got a higher nutrient density in terms of the micronutrients it contains. It's got higher levels of vitamin E. It's got an abundance of monounsaturated fat. It's, it's, you're supporting a system with grass-finished beef that, as I mentioned, is kinder to the animals, better to the environment. It's better, right? But we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good with nutrition. Oh, that's a good saying. Not everybody has the same kind of access that I have. I live in Los Angeles, right? I, I'm very grateful. I am fairly successful in my endeavors, thank God. It's been, a, it's been a many years to get to this point of struggle, but I, I can afford to practice what I preach. Right. But for people that are in food deserts that don't have access to these kinds of foods, even factory farm beef, an amazing source of dietary protein. You can go and you can buy, if you're really strapped for cash, you can buy a whole chicken. It doesn't have to be organic, right? 
people think that chicken gets has all these like added hormones and stuff pumped into it. It's a fallacy. It's illegal to put to feed chickens hormones. To, to, to pump them with. Yeah. So it's because I mean, the marketing, the marketing says hormone free chicken. Right. It's the marketing there. I mean, they're, they're certainly bred to be get bigger in certain respects, right? Like right. modern chickens can't even, they're not heirloom chickens. Modern chickens can't even walk because they're bred <laughs> to carrying so much meat. And I, and I feel terrible, but, but look, even you buy a whole chicken, it costs virtually nothing. You put it in the oven, you eat the whole chicken. It's an amazing source of protein of various micronutrients. And again, a way better option than what most Americans are, are probably eating for dinner, right? Like right. your average American today is consuming 60% of their calories from ultra processed foods. I want to get people off of that, right? We got to get people off of off of the ultra processed foods off of the frozen convenience foods for dinner, right? And help people get back to, to cooking. I mean, cooking is such a this is one of the reasons why I wrote my new book genius kitchen, because it's one of the most powerful leverage points that people have to save money to improve their health to improve their family dynamics all with just learning a little bit about how to find your way around a kitchen. And it's not hard. It's not impossible. I started not knowing how to cook. And because of what I experienced with my family, I had to learn on the job, so to speak. And studies show that people who eat at home more frequently, they have healthier body fat percentages. They have healthy, healthier BMIs. So they're at less risk for obesity. They have better cardiometabolic health. They have, again, improved family dynamics. I mean, we know that you can cook the same thing at home that you'll get out at a restaurant and it'll have fewer calories, fewer fat calories, less sodium. Um, it's such a, it's such a powerful leverage point. And, right. uh, and so, yeah. Well, and when people tell me it's so expensive living this healthy lifestyle, I'm like, just go back to the basics, bring in more fruits and vegetables, quit so much packaged processed foods, you know, and bring those fruits and vegetables into the kitchen and start cooking with them. Have your kids cook with them, things like that. So I love that you mentioned that about your Genius Kitchen book. Will you actually tell my listeners a little bit more about that book? Like what can they find in that book? Yeah, so you're getting a two for one deal with Genius Kitchen. I actually, just before we started recording, I got it for the first time. Oh, look at that. Oh, that's awesome. It looks great. You like it? I'm a little self-conscious being on the cover of it, but uh, because I wasn't on the cover of my previous two books, but I'm very proud of it. It's a thick book. That is thick. And the reason for that is it's a two-in-one two book. You get over 100 delicious recipes using highly accessible, low-cost foods, the most nutrient-dense foods that most people will be able to find. Look, there are always going to be people that live in really unfortunate parts of the world where you know, all they have access to are the foods sold at a gas station. We're trying right. to improve that, that right. situation, right? You're still going to need to go to a supermarket to be able to buy the ingredients, um, but that being said, these are not ingredients that are only found in the most pristine LA supermarket, okay? These are ingredients that are generally very accessible, low cost. And I have a framework for understanding what the best version of each is to buy, but also also showing that even, as I mentioned, the unperfect version isn't necessarily bad, can actually play a, a health supportive role as well. So you get all these amazing recipes, beautiful photography, and then the first half of the book is a resource. So everything that we've just talked about, I do a deeper dive in the front of the book. It's about 150 pages of just like really, really actionable and achievable practical information for people that breaks down every sort of aspect of modern food from dairy to salt to meat to plants to vinegars to herbs and spices, um, fish, all broken down so that people can know not only why I make the recommendations that I do, so my rationale. Um, and the science underpinning it with references, but also, yeah, the practical sort of like advice. It's, it's 
the goal is to serve as sort of a, a kitchen compass in a I, will. In, I love in a that. I love that because I love books that will give a resource as to why all these foods are good and the nutrients in them and things like that. But then I love when they give actual recipes to go along with all those foods they just talked about. So I'm excited to get this book. Where can people find this book when it comes out? So it comes out March 29th. If you are wanting to guarantee that you get it, I highly recommend that you pre-order at geniuskitchenbook.com. Geniuskitchenbook.com is the place to go to get it. And then, yeah, you can you can get that after you can get it there after it comes out. You can find it at any bookstore that uh, that you like to support. I always recommend supporting local bookstores. Um, but if you want to just make things easy and, and get your hands on it, stat Genius Kitchen Book is the place to go and find all the links to all the different stores. That's good to know. So I have a question for you. This may or may not be in the book. Do you talk about foods to avoid in the book or no? I do. Yeah, I do. I talk about, for example. You know, what are the kinds of animal products that you want to avoid? Well, generally, you want to avoid the ones that are uh, fried. Um, I mean, that's right there. Uh, the the ones that are highly processed for the most, I mean, it depends on, on the product. But, you know, in general, like I like the animal products that I buy to be minimally processed, um, if at all. I talk about which oils um, are worth avoiding or at least minimizing. Um, and these, these are the grain and seed oils, which we kind of touched on earlier, but canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil, grapeseed oil. And I provide my rationale for that recommendation in the book. Yeah, so I definitely talk about what to avoid. But in general, my approach is not to demonize food Foods. groups or anything, anything like that. It's really to tell people what it is that they should be consuming more of. I love um, it. Yeah. So tell me really quick about the seed oils. And some of these foods that we should avoid that we, I mean, we all know sugar and, you know, inflammatory foods, things like that. Do they cause an actual issue with the brain? Seed oils? Uh-huh. We don't actually know because the long-term randomized control trials to that where you'll take a person and you feed them lots of seed oils and you see if there's an impact on on brain function or on their long-term brain health, that RCT has not been done, unfortunately. But there have been RCTs where they've substituted natural animal-derived fats for these kinds of seed oils, and they've seen an increase in cancer rates. And and that's out there. People can look up the Minnesota... It was the Minnesota coronary study. They wanted to see the cardiovascular impact of swapping saturated fats, which humans have been consuming for millennia, right? I mean, even breast milk is rich in saturated fat. They wanted to see what would happen if we eschewed those fats in favor of corn oil enriched products. Um, and they used prisoners to do this study, lucky for them. <laughs> and they found that there was an increase in cardiovascular events over time, as well as increased risk rates of cancer. And so we don't yet know how that impacts the brain, but we, knew, we do know that these fats integrate themselves into your brain tissue because they're polyunsaturated dominant fats. And so the brain is constructed of polyunsaturated fats. So they have very easy entry into the brain and by the time we consume them, they're already oxidized. Many of these oils right. um, commercially, they're, so they're, they're oxidized. When we cook with them, they create dangerous oxidative byproducts like certain aldehydes. Um, they also contain a small but significant amount of trans fats. Right. We know that when they integrate themselves into your LDL lipoprotein, for example, that it makes those lipoproteins more prone to oxidative modification. They take on a more inflammatory phenotype. They more easily adhere or they, they more readily will be taken up by um, and adhere to immune cells like monocytes, which is the 
you know, the earliest sort of what happens in atherosclerosis, right? So we know that they're not good. We know that they're that they're no bueno. And we don't yet, I think, know for sure what they're what they do to the brain, but I like to promote what's called the precautionary principle. I consider them guilty until proven innocent, and they certainly have not been proven innocent at this right. point. Well, and we know the effects that they have on other parts of the body. So There you go. There you go. I think many in the nutritional orthodoxy, they, they love them because they reduce LDL cholesterol. When we swap saturated fats for polyunsaturated fats, these grain seed oils, they bring your LDL down, right? So for some in the, in the nutritional and medical orthodoxy, that's all they need to hear. Right. And they're like, okay, I'm sold. This is the fat that I want to, that we ought to all be consuming, right? But to me, that's BS because your LDL, I mean, that's not the end all be all determinant of a person's metabolic health. Right. It's just not. Right. There are, there are other factors and we don't yet have the long-term data to, to show. I mean, somebody, because these oils have been marketed as healthy for so long, you could almost pin the healthy user bias to them, right? Like somebody who's, who's using canola oil primarily, maybe they have better health because they're health conscious, right? They're right. using canola oil. They're eating a diet low in animal fats. They're using canola oil, but they're exercising and they're taking the multivitamin and they're doing everything that, that their doctor recommends. So that kind of evidence to me, it's just, that's not good enough. Right. It's another um, observational type study. Exactly. So that's just, that's my take. And I expound on that more in the, in all of my books I talk about, I talk about fats and how, how important picking the right fats are for your brain are, but it's really not rocket science. I mean, it's whatever fats have been around the longest, those are the fats that I think are the ones that, that we should more readily integrate into our diets. And it's the newer, the man-made fats that deserve, I think, the greatest level of scrutiny. Right. Um, extra virgin olive oil, for example. Humans have been pressing and, and consuming for thousands, thousands of years of at years. this point. Yep. Yeah, because you make extra, extra virgin olive oil is a fresh fruit juice made by squeezing olives, right? You can't yep. squeeze an ear of corn and get <laughs> corn oil out of it, right? That's not how it right. works. It's not how it works. Right. Well, and we need to teach people not to fear fat because fat is so important, not just for the brain, but it's also really important for hormones and lots of actually issues in parts of the body, I should say. So thank you for explaining that. Before we close, I just want to ask you a little bit about Alzheimer's since your mom dealt with it, things like that. Is it random who gets it or can lifestyle play a role in it? Does diet maybe help mitigate the risk? Great question. So my mom, my mom actually had a form of dementia that they're all, I guess, related to some degree in the sense that they're neurodegenerative progressive conditions. But Alzheimer's disease is something that I focused on because that's what the majority of the research is. It's just the most common form of dementia. It's not a condition that is determined by genes. So we'll just say that outright, that it's for the vast majority of people who will develop Alzheimer's disease, this is not a genetic condition. Okay. Two to 3% of Alzheimer's cases are what are called early onset familial Alzheimer's disease. So that is genetically determined. But again, that's a small minority, two to 3% of cases. It's a different animal than late onset or sporadic Alzheimer's disease, which is what our grandmothers typically develop, right? Although my grandmother never had Alzheimer's disease. She actually was cognitively healthy until she, she died at the age of 96. Wow. Most cases are the result of an interaction between genetic risk factors and the environment. One in four people carry a genetic risk factor called the APOE4 allele. It's the most well-defined of the, of the Alzheimer's risk genes. But there are others, and there are also genes that play a protective role. Um, but the APOE4 allele possessing it, which one in four people do, 
carries anywhere between a two and 14 fold increased risk, depending on how many copies you carry. But that risk is not fate. That's just risk. And it seems to be that APOE4 carriers are the most vulnerable to the ill effects of the standard American diet. So I like to say that genes aren't destiny, but they do decide what the standard American diet will do to you. And for somebody who carries two copies of the APOE4 allele, it's likely that the standard American diet for them will lead to Alzheimer's disease. Interesting. It's, st it's still not determinant. Right. Some people are, they have polygenic risks. So some, they'll have some genes that are protective or whatever. But um, ultimately, everybody is at risk. You can, you can carry no genes. You can carry no APOE4 allele. You could be APOE33, for example, and still develop Alzheimer's disease. So everybody ultimately can develop this condition. But knowing that it begins in the brain decades before the first symptom, that is a window of opportunity to intervene and to begin to make brain healthier choices every day, whether it's exercising more, getting off your butt more, because when the body moves, the brain grooves. I mean, it's like exercise is crucially a, a saying from uh, my friend, Jim Quick. He, um, he's really good at like uh, these kinds of like really memorable sayings. It is a good saying. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, I mean, this is certainly true when it comes to the brain, exercise is medicine. So I've dedicated myself to understanding and, and communicating just how valuable exercise is from the standpoint of the brain. Eating a brain healthy diet, so eating the genius foods on loop, minimizing the ultra processed foods, minimizing the crappy grain and seed oils, it's all so crucially important. And we can see, thanks to new randomized controlled trials, that even in advanced age, if you have at least one risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, that you can steer the ship in a different direction. The finger study, which is run out of the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, has shown us the world's, it's, it's an amazing seminal trial in the field of dementia prevention that I cite regularly, even adults in advanced age with at least one genetic risk factor by adhering to a diet much like the diet I recommend and exercising more frequently um, if you're sedentary can reduce your risk for cognitive decline, improve your processing speed by 150%, which is remarkable, and improve your executive function by 83%, even in advanced age. So imagine what you can do wow. with more runway, right? So that's, uh, that to me is, it's about communicating that these are not, the genes are not destiny, especially when it comes to these conditions, but you just have to, you just have to do something. You can't do nothing and expect to have a different fate than, than the statistics. Right. I love that you say that genes are not our destiny because too many times I hear that. So thank you for explaining that and showing how that is not the case. I have a question though, really quick about Alzheimer's. What about somebody that already has been diagnosed with it? Can these lifestyle factors and diet um, foods help? Well, unfortunately, nobody's ever recovered from Alzheimer's disease. And I wish that weren't the case because, I mean, you know, I wish that my mom, right. that there was a magic pill for her uh, that, that, would have, that would have worked. But there is evidence that certain dietary patterns, namely a ketogenic diet, which I've written extensively about, primarily in, in my first book, Genius Foods, can help improve symptoms, can improve help symptomology in Alzheimer's disease. We need more research, so these haven't been large, robust trials with lots and lots and lots of patients, but we're seeing that a ketogenic diet may be able to help in terms of keeping the lights on in the brain because ketones are provide an alternate fuel source to, to the metabolically ailing brain, which is what occurs in Alzheimer's disease. Right. We also see that certain fats like medium-chain triglycerides can potentially play a role. There was a small study, I believe it was an Iranian study, where they found that medium-chain triglycerides can potentially help 
Uh, and there, there's a, a physician named Mary Newport who has really popularized MCTs as a way of um, providing an adjunct therapy for, uh, for patients with Alzheimer's disease because getting somebody with dementia to adhere to a ketogenic diet, which is a very difficult diet to adhere to, right. isn't, the easy, isn't the easiest ask, right? So medium chain triglycerides may help. There's even a, an FDA-approved medical food called Axona, which is based on medium chain triglycerides, which, which is FDA-approved for the treatment of, of Alzheimer's disease. And of course, exercise. I mean, exercise, I think, has, I believe it's been shown at this point that even for patients with Alzheimer's disease, that exercise can slow progression. It can certainly slow, it can certainly reduce risk of conversion from milder forms of cognitive impairment to Alzheimer's disease which is very powerful um, information to have, right. like mild, mild cognitive impairment, and it can prevent that. So exercise is, is really great in terms of, in terms of pr pr protecting the brain. But at a certain point, if you're diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, I mean, there's a lot, it just, there's a lot of pathology that's already there, and so it's going to be a little bit harder to, to treat. But that's where I think the, the more robust the intervention, the more hope there potentially is. Right. whether it's exercise or a ketogenic diet. But all that is to say, just to be very clear, that you know, these are not, um, not cures. cures for Alzheimer's right. disease. Nobody, nobody's ever recovered, unfortunately. And, um, and that is, it, is a, it is a terrible condition. It's America's most feared condition for a reason. So right. that's why my work is really about getting this message of prevention out to people across the age spectrum. I love that that is your message. And I'm just glad, though, to know that there are ways to help the symptoms a little, you know, some. And let's just hope that in the near future, maybe the science can provide a cure someday for people because it is a terrible disease. And I know people fear it. So I guess all we can hope for is better days ahead. I hope. We talked a little bit about vitamin E and, and fat-soluble antioxidants. I'm, I'm now recalling there was a study that used high-dose vitamin E that found a, some degree of functional improvement in patients with Alzheimer's disease, which was pretty remarkable for a vitamin to do right, that. Right. Um, but, well, you know, again, these are, these are generally not the largest, like, effect sizes and, and what have you. Right. But if I personally had Alzheimer's disease, I could one day have. I would utilize a ketogenic diet. I would take the vitamin E. I would make sure that I'm exercising regularly. I would, I would be doing all the things. Right. Well, that's why it's just so important for everybody that's listening now to eat that whole food diet and to exercise and get good sleep and things like that. Thank you, Max, so much for being here on the show today. I really appreciate it. Tell my listeners where they can find you. Thanks, Carolyn. Well, I'm very active, I should say, on Instagram at Max Lugavere, and that's spelled L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. I highly recommend, recommend people pick up my book, Genius Kitchen, which is a, I wrote to be a very powerful resource for people, um, geniuskitchenbook.com. And then I also host my own podcast. So if you like podcasts, which I'm assuming you do, my podcast is called The Genius Life. So come over and say hi. And you guys, his Instagram is so good. I love it. I see it daily and his podcasts are awesome. So go give him a follow if you do not follow him already. And then, Max, I always close my shows by asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? Oh, my God, the best ingredient. <laughs> well, what popped into my head, I don't know if I would call it the best ingredient, but it's an ingredient that I really like. Um, and it was the first to, to pop into my head was bee pollen. I've been oh, okay. bee pollen lately, which is, you know, one of these foods is not, you're going to be hard pressed to find it in most supermarkets, but it's pretty easy to find in L.A., 
it's literally the pollen from bees and it's like super tasty. I love to put it on, on Greek yogurt. I love to throw it into salads or sometimes I just like eat it by the, by the handful. Like I just, you know, we'll just put it in, shovel it into my mouth. It's so good. Low in calories, rich in, in various phytonutrients. You're supporting the bees by purchasing it. And I get mine from a, a company that, um, great company. They, they protect the bees. I work with them on my podcast called Beekeepers Naturals. Oh yeah. I know uh, who they are. They're a great yeah. company. Yeah. So I get, I get bee pollen and uh, I love this stuff. It's like a great midday, like pick me up for me. That's awesome. And it's great for those that have like a cold or, you know, trying to boost their immune system, things like that. There's lots of benefits to bee pollen. So I love that yeah. you said that. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I, I've, it's not a genius food necessarily, but uh, when you asked one of my favorite ingredients, I was like, oh, I've, I've been really, you know. No, that's great. No guest has uh, said that one yet. So that's perfect. Love it. Thank you, Max, so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I know my listeners have learned a lot about brain health and foods that affect it. So thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everybody listening for being here, listening to the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.